Hello and welcome to Love Thy Lawyer, where we talk to real lawyers about their lives in and out of the practice of law, how they got to be lawyers, and what their experience has been. I'm Lewis Goodman, the host of the show, and yes, I'm a lawyer. Nobody's perfect. He is considered, if not the king of drunk driving defense, at least one of its most admired princes. Few people know more about field sobriety tests. He's lectured California Highway Patrol officers on the proper way to administer them. He served as a public defender at the legendary Bronx Legal Aid Society. He has numerous published articles, including a recent piece in Forum, the journal of the CACJ. He is currently the public defender in Truckee, California. Bruce Capsack, welcome to Love Thy Lawyer. Thank you, Lewis. I'm really happy to be here. How did you happen to become the public defender in Truckee, California? Luck is is the true answer. After running my own practice for 20 or so years, I decided it was time to go back to public defender work. I found out about an opening in Nevada County, of which Truckee is one of the cities, and it turns out that the public defender... Terry Klein of Nevada County was actually a law clerk of mine while she was in law school in Contra Costa County when I first moved here from New York. Bruce, where are you from originally? Originally from New York. I was born in Queens, and then we moved to a place called Rockland County, which is about uh, 25 miles north and across the Hudson from the major part of uh, New York City. Is that where you went to high school? I did. I went to a place called Ralpo High. And how was that experience for you? It was it was good. It was definitely a uh, upper middle class school, rigorous education, good sports, very diverse population. And you know, I wouldn't say I was the most popular kid in the class, but I wasn't the one getting beaten up all the time. Well, something to be said for that. After you graduated from Ramapo High School, where'd you go to college? I went to a place which was called Plymouth State College at the time. It's now grown, and it's become Plymouth State University. It's in New Hampshire. It's actually dead center of the state of New Hampshire. What did you study at Plymouth State? I went there originally to be a high school social studies teacher. So I did a bunch of education classes and social studies, history, etc. But in the back of my mind, I've always known I was going to be an attorney. You ultimately went to law school. Did you go to law school directly out of college? I did. I did. I went from Plymouth State College, which, to give an idea, full-time, part-time, undergrad, and grad is about or was about 2,800 students. The town of Plymouth has the college on one side and the town on the other, and I can still name the half a dozen businesses in town. After that four-year experience, I decided to go to a big city, and went to Washington College of Law, which is part of the American University in Washington, D.C. Oh, that is a big change. Yeah, I went from having more people in the apartment building in which I lived than pretty much lived on campus. When did you first decide to go to law school, decide to be a lawyer? Well, I guess the the easy answer is I decided at Plymouth State. 
But the more complete answer is I've always known I was going to be an attorney. Whenever we had projects in junior high or high school that involved any kind of law aspect, I always volunteered to be the lawyer and I always volunteered to be the defense attorney. So it's basically been in my makeup for as far back as I can remember. And do you know what prompted you to start thinking about it? No, I'm not 100% sure what did. I did have my um, maternal grandmother was a lifelong, she got elected at a very early age to the State House of Representatives in New Hampshire. One of the first women elected, one of the first Democrats elected, and she served there till she passed away. And through her and my parents, I had this, always had this concept of justice, especially for those in society that don't tend to get justice. So that's part of where it came from. After law school, you had a couple of interim jobs, but then you went and served, as mentioned, as a public defender at the Bronx Legal Aid Society. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience. Sure. I'll back up just a little bit. When I was in law school, I had the fortune of working for a very famous criminal defense attorney by the name of Marvin Miller. And the group of attorneys in Northern Virginia and the Alexandria area were some of the best known criminal defense attorneys around. And they're the ones who said that, you know, we're going to help train you and others like me, but in the end, you're going to have to make sure to train others because if we don't have staunch criminal defense attorneys, then we lose our constitution because that's where it comes from. When I was getting near the end of graduation time, I was looking at what to do, and they all told me that I could work for any one of them if I wanted to, but that they would fire me the very next day because if I was too stupid to realize that I should go somewhere else for a little while, then I was probably too stupid to work for them. So I applied to a bunch of different um, public defender offices, got accepted in New York, you get accepted to legal aid, and then they try and match you with where you live geographically. As I said, I was living just north of New York City, and the Bronx is the furthest north of the counties. So that's where I went in, I guess it was early 1987, or mid-1987, I should say. And that Bronx courthouse is where Bonfire the Vanities is set for anyone who want some sort of a primer on what that experience is like. It, it is. Uh, I was there. I actually walked down the hallway next to Mr. Hanks at one point because security back then was not the way it is now with celebrities. And I was on my way to one of the courtrooms to do some real work, and he was on his way to film a scene. After you left the Bronx Legal Aid Society, where did you go? After I left Bronx Legal Aid, I came out west to California. First thing I was doing is I was working in the Contra Costa County Public Defender's Office. What prompted your move from New York, California? Well, in the third year of working at the Bronx Public Defender's Office, a woman walked off the elevator in our office, and I fell in love with her and found out that she was one of the district attorneys, one of the prosecutors in the Bronx, a uh, good friend with two of my colleague public defenders, and we haven't been apart pretty much ever since. So she came out here to California, and I followed her. Yeah. Well, well, love will have a way of doing that to you. 
It does. And it's been 27 years that we've been married, and we just celebrated that uh, last week. Well, congratulations. How long did you stay at Contra Costa Public Defender? I stayed at the Contra Costa Public Defender's Office, I want to say, probably about eight months or so. I'm just shy of a year, somewhere between eight months and a year. I'm studying for the bar exam, took and passed the bar exam, then was waiting. I was hoping that I would be employed by Contra Costa County, but for some political reasons, it didn't happen. But along the way, I met a friend of both of ours who unfortunately has passed by the name of Fred Reamer. We had a happenstance meeting. He heard that I was waiting for employment, and Fred offered me the extra room in his office, which was right down the hall from here. It was. How did that experience work out with Fred Reamer, the legendary Fred Reamer? Well, first of all, we have to give credit. That is the best name for a lawyer, a palindrome named Reamer. That just, you know, puts fear in everybody's spine. But it worked out really well. Fred was a, a wild man. He reminded me a lot of Marvin Miller and John Whirling, the two guys that trained me up back in Northern Virginia. He had that same spirit of uh, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. But what people didn't realize is he had already shored up the hull so that the torpedoes wouldn't do anything to him. He just pretended that he was going recklessly. And I really liked that, and I was with him for uh, a year. Well, then the Office of Citizen Complaints in San Francisco, which at the time was the civilian side of internal affairs, went through a major shakeup. They had been using former prosecutors for the most part to prosecute bad cops, and that just didn't work out. So they decided to go the other way and look for someone who had been doing defense work who to, to challenge the police officers. They thought that was a more realistic aspect. I applied for and received that position and was the chief prosecutor of the Office of Citizen Complaints for about a year. Now, eventually, you moved into a very specialized DUI practice. How did that happen? I left there and was hired by a criminal defense firm, one of the biggest criminal defense firms in Northern California, that had a majority of its practice in DUI. Even though law has always been my love and passion, I've also always enjoyed medical aspect or, you know, the sciences, I guess is the best way to put it. And while I had very little experience in the DUI arena when I first joined that firm, I quickly saw that I loved the math of calculating blood alcohol levels. I loved the physiology of field sobriety tests, you know, the whole concept of how do you know a machine is accurate through traceability, all of these concepts screamed out at me, and I just dove right in. DUI is very, very complicated as far as science is concerned, and it really involves a lot of forensics that one doesn't see outside of the murder arena in criminal defense. Absolutely. And I've always been shocked that both public defender and DA's offices hand DUIs to people that are, you know, the, the diploma is still wet. Because as you said, there's a lot of science. Now, out of that DUI practice, you met and started working 
with another legend, Ed Kuwach. Yes, yeah. Again, it, it's interesting. I'm starting to think, as you're talking to me, I'm starting to think maybe it's me that I attract these people. Ed was another one, like Fred and like Marvin and John. He was definitely, he was less damn the torpedoes. He was much more, if I can say this, screw the government. One of the most fantastic things that Ed did. Well, first of all, he had been a great DUI attorney in the Bay Area. When I met him, he had left fairly recently and went into sort of a semi-retirement. He didn't really do a lot of day-to-day DUI work. Instead, he found pleasure in harassing the government, especially the Department of Motor Vehicles, as to why they were doing things the way they were doing. And he filed freedom of information request after freedom of information request to get all this information where we found out that, you know, the people being, for the DMV, people being trained to make these decisions and how they were being trained was just abhorrent. And once that information got out, people were like, yeah, you can't do that. And, you know, we're talking California, except for its big cities. If you can't drive, you're in deep trouble. And I know people can say that about almost anywhere, but back east, the big city runs from Bangor, Maine to Key West, Florida. So, you know, out here, if you can't drive, you can't make a living. And if the Department of Motor Vehicles is taking people's licenses away when they shouldn't, that affects a lot of innocent people. You've been practicing for quite some time. What is it that you Um, really like about practicing law? Okay. Yeah, as a matter of fact, right before this, I was starting to think my first time in a courtroom was about now, give or take a couple of weeks, in 1986. So that gives me uh, my 35th anniversary. What I like about it, it truly is my passion. The very first time I walked into a courtroom, was the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. So one step below the Supreme Court, and I didn't even graduate law school yet. Uh, I walked in there, I saw attorneys with decades of practice, and they were jumping around and sweating and everything else, and I just looked at my teacher, my professor, and I just said, can we ask permission to go first, because I want to do this. I love that aspect. I, I really enjoy... The intellectual part, I, I really enjoy when I'm up against a district attorney or a judge or all three where we're debate intelligently, calmly, but passionately, what does a specific law mean? Does this actually cover this topic? Or is there a loophole? Or should there be an exception? I really enjoy that mental aspect. At the same time, you know, a lot of people have asked me, Bruce, you did DUI work for all that time. You know, you put all these drunks back on the road, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, you know, how do you do that? And I say, well, the truth is I probably get more thank you cards than most sober living environments or halfway houses or rehab because a lot of the people that I represented would have ended up down that, but we headed them off and they realized it. And so that makes you feel really good. You know, it makes you feel really good when you have somebody who made a mistake, you help them through the mistake as best you can, and they turn around and they say, you know what, thank you for doing it. You did turn my life around. A lot of times, you know, I'll get messages later on, I saved a marriage simply by representing somebody on a DUI case. So that makes you feel really good when you do that. 
if someone were coming out of college and looking for a career, would you recommend the law as a career? You know, I knew you were going to ask you that question. I go back and forth. How is practicing law either met or different from your expectations about it? Well, the first difference I would point out is that when you get out of law school, they haven't told you actually how to practice law. They've taught you the law, so to speak, but the practice of it, they haven't. And even harder, and this is a cautionary tale for anybody who's listening to this in law school just starting out, if you're going to go out on your own and, you know, the old hang your shingle outside the barn door kind of thing, you better start taking some night business classes because it's not easy to run a practice. I know you've done it uh, a little bit longer than I did. It's, it's tough work. It's long work. You know, you're in court nine to five and you think, okay, that's it. But then, no, it's time to go home and get new clients, pay the secretary, pay the rent. So that part really was a shock to me coming out of law school. How, how did that go for you, the business of practicing law? What did you think of that? We, I was lucky. I had a business partner by the name of Hudson Bear who was definitely – People always said between the two of us, we were a really good combination because my head was in the sky and his feet were on the ground. I would come up with these grandiose ideas and he would always have, you know, a little bit of money stashed away. So his attitude was, we can try this for 30 days and see what happens. Over 20 years, I'm proud to say that more often than not, the 30 days worked out and it became part of our practice. But there were a couple of times where we fell flat. So you learn. Is there anything that you know now that you really wished you'd known before you ever got into the law? I think the most important thing is to learn how to shake a lot of it off. There's a lot that comes at you that in the beginning you take too personally and you have to learn to shake it off. And I wish I'd known that when I started because there were a couple of times I took things a little too personally and it was tough to get back up, you know, and, and start again. What do you think is the best advice you've ever received? Well, the best advice I ever received as far as the legal, you know, running a practice or business end of it was from Marvin, my first mentor, and he gave me three words of advice, and it was prepare, prepare, prepare. Do you think the legal system is fair? The legal system is fair in its unfairness. It is, and that's not my... Uh, someone actually said that about the universe, that the universe is universally unfair, so that makes it fair. What I mean by that is the, the justice system tries to be fair, but there's too many levers or moving parts. And the most significant one in my mind is economics. You have published uh, numerous articles and you most recently have published the first of two parts, something called Reframing the Narrative, Defense Techniques for Criminal Trials, and that's in the CACJ publication. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about what you mean by reframing the narrative. Sure. First, we have to talk a little bit about framing. Framing is, um, it's been around forever. Carl Rove made a whole lot of money off of it and a whole lot of success for politics off of it. But basically... The concept is whoever creates the framework for their audience, then their audience is 
already there. It's already captivated. One of the easiest examples for those of us of a certain age is if I say to people, how many of you are in favor of choice? Very few people are going to say they're not. But if I say, how many of you are are in favor of abortion? Even people who believe in choice will start to hem and haw because that's not what they're in favor of. And that is framing in a nutshell. When it comes to the criminal justice system, the first and worst aspect of framing is what you just said in the question before, but in a different context. When the judge says, can everybody here be fair or can you be fair to both sides? That's wrong. Fair to both sides means even, balanced, starting out the same. But in a criminal trial, it is blatantly, intentionally, and constitutionally unfair. For example, I tell you fair. I say, so who do you want to hear from? You say, well, I want to be fair. I want to hear from both sides. Nope. Criminal case, you only hear from one side. When you say to somebody, how would you have conduct a fair race? They would say, well, you both start at the start and you both go to the finish line. Nope. In a criminal trial, the defendant has already won the race because the defendant is presumed not guilty. They are the presumptive winner of the race. Well, that's not fair. And when a judge says fair, the other thing is who wins in a fair fight? Whoever scores another point or two. I mean, just look at boxing, you know. They fight for 13 rounds, and it comes down to one point by one judge, and they get the win. That's not criminal. It's got to be all the judges with all the points on their scorecard going to the prosecution in every round. So as soon as a judge, and it's not the judge's fault because they were trained this way, as soon as the judges start saying, we want a fair trial, They've immediately framed it in people's minds that both start, sides start out evenly, that one side can win by one point, and that they need to hear from both people. Now, I've been lucky and successful in convincing judges that instead of asking if they can be fair, ask if they can be appropriate. And I've used this a few times, and it's, it's gaining some traction. <clears throat> like a lot of things in the law, it moves slowly. So that's part of the concept of reframing the narrative. I'm going to shift gears here a little bit, Bruce. Tell me a little bit about what your family life has been like and how practicing law has affected that. There's been good and bad, but you could probably say that about every career. I do have three kids. Um, Two of them are disappointments because they're both considering going to law school. But I do say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. One interesting aspect is my children will tell you Having grown up listening to me, if you're growing up in this household and you've listened to it your entire life, there comes a point where you can actually, they can actually do my lines. And, it, you know, it did become funny at times where I'd be on the phone and they could tell the next line out of my mouth. They would know what I'd be saying to somebody. At the same time, having seen people whose lives did get severely messed up either through injury because of alcohol or to themselves or their family because of alcohol. I never had to lecture my children on alcohol. They pretty much got it. And what's interesting is so a lot of their friends. What sort of recreational pursuits do you 
have and how does that help you clear your head after a day of practicing law? Well, absolutely. Uh, you'll find me uh, hitting Mount Rose anytime I can to go skiing. Yep. And I do bicycle when we don't have so much uh, smoke in the air that it's unhealthy. I love to bicycle because that gets me in shape for skiing. What sort of things keep you up at night? I still, just two nights ago, whenever I get a tough case, they, they lean on me. You know, I said about shrugging things off. The truth of the matter is if, if, if you're, I think any profession, if you're in almost any profession and you're passionate about it and you've got a problem and it doesn't gnaw at you at night or hit you in the shower or something like that, then it's probably time to give it up because you don't care anymore. Let's say you and your wife came into some real money, a few billion dollars, you know, three, four billion dollars. What, if anything, would you do differently in your life? Well, my wife would immediately move back to New York. She's made that very clear. Whether I'd go back or not, I don't know. No, I'm kidding. I would. I would probably, besides, besides, but I'd still keep my place here in Truckee for the skiing and for the summers. But besides that, I would definitely find a way to do even more teaching, especially at all levels. And so I would, if I had the money, I would find a way, you know, to, to go. And the pitch is I routinely volunteer wherever I find myself. I go immediately to the high school social studies teachers and I say, I'm willing to come in here. This is what I'm willing to talk about. I've done it before. I'll do it again. And they say yes, because it's something new and different and they like it. And they never been turned down by a social studies department. When I say, you want to give me a day or two over this semester, I'll come in and do this. They're like, hell yeah. And that's my pitch to everybody out there. Do it. Let's say you had a magic wand. There was one thing in the world that you could change in the legal world or otherwise. What would that be? Get rid of the death penalty. Let's say you got 60 seconds on the Super Bowl. You had a Super Bowl ad. You could say whatever you wanted. 60 seconds. Huge audience. What would you want to tell the world? Look at the person next to you. They have all the same needs and desires that you do. The two of you just have a different thought of how to get there. Instead of each of you fighting on who's right and who's wrong to get there, why don't you just both grab hands and walk and get there? Bruce, you and I have known each other for quite some time, and you've always struck me as someone who follows your passions. Can you comment on that? Yeah. Like I've told my children, be, whatever it is you want to do, if you're passionate about it, do it. And once you lose that passion, find something else. You'll, you'll, if, if you're passionate about what you're doing, you will be successful. You'll be successful in your heart, successful in your head, and you'll probably be successful in your wallet. Bruce Capsack, thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Thy Lawyer podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Lewis, it's been great talking to you. I wish you well in this. And if you ever want to chat, give me a call. That's it for today's episode of Love Thy Lawyer. If you enjoyed listening, please share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast. If you have comments or suggestions, send me an email. I promise I'll respond. Take a look at our website at lovethylawyer.com, where you can find all of our episodes, transcripts, photographs, and information. Thanks, as always, to my guests who share their wisdom. 
and to Joel Katz for music, Brian Matheson for technical support, and Tracy Harvey. I'm Lewis Goodman. Because we're on the other side of the mountain, I have to be able to function on their own and be able to do everything from drunken public to murder. And I fit the bill, and off we went.